0: Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Spring Retreat. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael McConnell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is, The Supreme Court in Transition. It was recorded on April 24th, 2017. Uh, My topic was carefully worded, that is the Supreme Court in Transition. I knew we couldn't go wrong with that. Uh, Of course, we didn't know who would be the new justice, we didn't know whether that justice would be confirmed, we didn't know whether there would be a filibuster, we didn't know whether filibusters would still be around, Uh, we didn't know any of these things, but we could be pretty sure that indeed there would be some kind of uh, transition, something to talk about. Uh, But as it is, uh, in in contrast to the way uh, Amy just finished uh, her talk, you know, I'd say there's... uh, uh, there's a, a lot of room for, for pleasure and optimism, uh, uh, with uh, with Neil Gorsuch, uh, and, and you know, in my opinion, the nomination of Neil Gorsuch was was of all of the various things that President Trump has done so far, uh, has been uh, um, my favorite of all of his acts. Um, and I say that because I sat with uh, Neil Gorsuch on the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit for about three and a half years. I know I'm extremely well. Uh, he and I sat together on, oh, roughly 50 cases uh, uh, during that time. Uh, we disagreed on a few. We agreed on, on, on very many more, but whether we agreed or we disagreed, I came uh, out of that uh, experience with him we, with enormous respect and affection. He is a, such a smart guy, such a conscientious guy, uh, a, a real law person. Uh, and I also think that he's going to bring some interpersonal uh, skills to the court uh, That uh, uh, because he really does try to get along with other people. He's uh, uh He's uh, he he knows how to talk uh, to people who may not necessarily share his uh, his point of view, and that's a very that's a valuable thing for any institution, all too much in short supply these days. But it's an especially valuable uh, skill on uh, on courts and on the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm also very glad to see uh, a real Westerner uh, put on the. Uh, on the court, which I think is is going to be helpful. Um, but people you know ask you, know, how much change is this going to bring? And if you read you know a lot of the you know New York Times and other press, uh, you, you may have you know heard all kinds of critics of Judge Gorsuch uh, bewailing you know just how terribly right wing he was going to be and how this is going to, you know send uh, the United States off into some new uh, course. Well, I have to say, you know, this is, you know, I have to use the technical political science term for this. So, it's it's called BS. (laughs) Um, This is uh, there is not going to be a dramatic change on the Supreme Court as a result of Neil Gorsuch being there. He is, after all, replacing Antonin Scalia. uh, my administrative law professor, by the way, back in in my law school days. And Scalia is on most issues uh, one one of, if not the most conservative of the justices uh, on the court. Um, There is no way that Neil Gorsuch is going to take the court farther to the right. He is going to, at most, be replacing Scalia. And my guess, uh, based upon my experience with him, is that he may be a little bit more uh, toward the middle, so don't expect any dramatic uh, changes. Now, it is one possible, possible change, is not left or right, but it's possible that he may bring a period in, when the, in which there's a little bit less rancor and maybe be uh, coming together uh, in the court since that was his, uh, his stock and trade uh, on the Tenth Circuit. And in particular, you know, he was the law clerk for Anthony Kennedy. They're very close. Kennedy swore him in uh, uh, on the uh, on the court. Uh, they get along uh, very well, and you know that might be quite a good thing that uh, Gorsuch may be able to to keep uh, 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 Tony Kennedy within uh, the the right of center fold. Uh, but that, if there are any changes, that's the one I would I would watch for. Uh, there's another matter of transition that if you read the papers, uh, you would think that, uh, that, that this is something quite radical, and that was the decision of the United States Senate to eliminate filibusters uh, for nominations to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, how many newspaper editorials did I read that said something like, this will change the character of the United States Senate forever? Right. This is a huge departure. You know, not so, not so at all. Uh, in fact, there has never been a partisan filibuster of a, of a Supreme Court justice. This is the first time in American history, it was the Gorsuch nomination was the very first time that, the, uh, that there was a, a, a filibuster that would have blocked a nominee uh, to the court. Uh, the most controversial nominee in my lifetime uh, other than Judge Bork, who was uh, defeated by a, uh, on a simple majority uh, vote, was Clarence Thomas. Uh, he had only 52 votes, uh, but no one, no matter how controversial he was, no one even suggested that there be a filibuster. Right? The first time there was even serious talk of a filibuster uh, was with Sam Alito in, what was it, 2006. Um, and the Democrats uh, would not join together with it. President then-Senator Obama supported uh, that filibuster, uh, but uh, there were not enough Democrats to sustain it, and he was then uh, confirmed by a a simple uh, majority. Had the opposition party been able to keep the filibuster in this case, that would have been a dramatic change in American practice. Because, again, that had never happened. But that would mean that no nominee to the Supreme Court could be confirmed with fewer than 60 votes. And when you think of that, that means uh, Gorsuch would not have been confirmed. Alito would not have been confirmed. Uh, Elena Kagan would not have been confirmed. Uh, Sotomayor would not have been confirmed. Roberts would not have been confirmed. In these hyper- partisan times, that would mean essentially no nominee could be confirmed to the, to the Supreme Court. That really would have been a kind of revolution. And what would happen? We don't really know. We've never been in this territory. But it's quite possible uh, that the pre- a president, whether Republican or Democrat, would respond uh, to that kind of a situation by naming recess appointments. Uh, to the court. These are temporary appointments that do not require uh, the confirmation of the Senate. Um, and that would mean gradually a Supreme Court and maybe an entire court system populated by people serving quite brief, I mean, uh, uh, less than two year uh, terms. And, and, and that would be the death knell for the judiciary as we know it, the death knell for an independent uh, judiciary because those people would be uh, expected, would, would be facing the, uh, just in a couple of years uh, the consequences of politicians voting for or against them uh, based upon uh, their performance in that brief period. That, uh, that would have been dramatic. Only by killing the filibuster uh, did the Senate prevent uh, a dramatic change in the way our, our court system uh, is, uh, is populated? Um, so beyond that, what else can we, uh, uh, can we expect? Uh, it, it's hard to make predictions based on what you know Gorsuch is like or what any of the individual justices are going to uh, be doing. We don't know what cases are going to come uh, before them uh, but I will, try to, so what I would like to talk about is some, some general uh, points about the way the court uh, operates. Um, I'm going to be talking about the politics of uh, Supreme Court decisions and of judicial decisions in general, but before that, I do that, I want to just offer a caveat. Uh, I do not believe that uh, most of the time the courts operate as political institutions. In fact, I believe quite the opposite. I think that the United States still can be quite proud of a system which more than most around the world, more than almost any around the world, does operate according to the rule of law. Uh, when those nominees, whether they are Sotomayor or whether they are Gorsuch, go before the Senate committee and say, I'm going to follow the law, uh, that is not BS. You know That is, that is true. I don't mean to say it's always true. It would be naive to think that there are no politics. Judges are human beings too, and and especially in the very you know high stakes culture warish uh, uh, type cases, you know obviously uh, the law is not always being uh, being followed. We all uh, know that, but it is it is aspirationally true uh, in our system, and it's true of uh, of almost every judge that I, uh, I know. And and so the law really does determine most cases. But to the extent that there is a politics, I want to ask what kind of politics is there? Uh, what is the politics of the, of, of the Supreme Court or of the federal courts in general? Whom do they represent? I want to suggest several different things. First of all, and perhaps most obviously, uh, the Supreme Court and the Federal judiciary in general represent the educated elite. You know, after all, who are they, <laughs> right? Every one of them uh, is a, a is very successful person. They are very well educated. Uh, they are not representative of the ordinary populace. They are uh, definitely an elite. Now, I don't like the fact. That on the United States Supreme Court, every one of them went to either Harvard or Yale Law School. Why not Stanford? You know, it wasn't long ago that uh, that we had two Stanford grads, Rehnquist and O'Connor, on the court. Let's bring back those days. Uh, um, uh, and, and actually, I'm a little uncomfortable about the whole elite thing. So uh, the judges, and especially the justices, are older than the population as a whole. Uh, Gorsuch looks quite young next to his colleagues. He's 49 years old. They're older. They are richer. They are more successful, every one of them very successful, right? Uh, They are more secular than the American public as a whole. They are not particularly representative. So effectively what we have done with, uh, to the extent that the courts are that we want to see them as political or understand the politics uh, of what they've done. What we've done is we've given a kind of veto uh, to the educated elite, right, that uh, ordinary people are represented in state legislatures and and things like that, but then, uh, you know, if the U.S. Supreme Court and its uh, uh, doesn't like their views on same-sex marriage or school prayer or guns or you have, uh, whatever it happens to be, uh, the educated elite gets a, gets a second vote and, and, and they can say no, for better or worse, right? And you can judge for yourself whether that's a, a good thing uh, or a bad thing. It's, a, the Supreme Court is our House of Lords, right? It's um, uh, to the extent that, there's, that, that it's uh, politics. Second thing, who else do they represent? Uh, the courts, and especially the justices, represent the past. Uh, they rep- specifically they represent the political majorities, political movements of the past. They were all named you know it, it 's like a a layer cake or 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 uh, like look at the u s Supreme Court. We have uh, one justice who was named by Ronald Reagan. We have one justice who was named by Uh, the first President Bush. We have two justices uh, who were named by Bill Clinton. We have two justices who were named by George W. Bush. We have two justices who were named by Barack Obama. And we have one justice named by our current president. So uh, the court, and, and these people are all named by these past presidents and confirmed by the Senates. Uh, at the time, Um, in effect we are giving, to the extent that this is political, we are giving a vote to the past, right? now, what does this mean? I think it increases stability. I think it's a kind of conservative institution, but by conservative, I mean small c conservative. I don't mean right wing. Conservative in this sense can as often be a product of the liberal past. So, so, when President Reagan was elected president, you know he is restrained by a very liberal uh, uh, court, right? But but still restrained. It's a it's a kind of it's a promotion of stability. It makes it hard for new administrations to lurch uh, dramatically uh, in, in new new directions because the courts are representatives of the past, uh, and they are going to. Uh, 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 hold them uh, back, at least uh, uh, to some uh, extent. Um, A third thing about the politics of the court and of the courts in general, federal courts in general, is that they are more politically balanced than any other of our institutions. You know, the presidency goes back and forth, Congress can go, I mean, it just, it wasn't long ago, right, after the 2008 elections that we had a filibuster-proof 60 Democrat Senate and a Democrat's running the House of Representatives. Now it's, you know, the Republicans have solid majorities in both of those houses. That's a very short period of time to go one way or uh, or the other. the, uh, the, the courts are not like that. Uh, uh, now, this is an artifact. This is not co- something that's built into the Constitution. It is an artifact of the fact that every eight years, the American public puts the other party in charge of the White House. Right? In my lifetime, and in fact, this goes back to Harry Truman, even before I was born, Right, every single an uh, eight year president is then succeeded by an eight year president of the other party. There's only been one uh, ex- uh, counter example and that was when uh, Jimmy Carter failed to be reelected and he kinda gave four extra years to uh, uh, to the Republican side. But other than that, every eight years we, sh- we switch and that means that every eight years we're getting a different political party choosing the judges. Uh, And in an eight-year period, uh, uh, a president names roughly 40% of the lower federal judiciary and two justices of the Supreme Court. It's quite regular. And the effect of this is that the courts tend to have – they are closer to uh, partisan balance than – and always are. To closer to a partisan balance than you have in, in the other institutions of government. Uh, they'll be going, you know, some years, depending on where you are in that cycle, you know, they may be, you know, you know 55, 60 percent one party and the other, uh, uh, but and then it may go back and forth, but it goes back and forth within a, quite a narrow range. Why is this important? It's important not just because of how they vote, but also because of how they deliberate. I think there's quite uh, serious, um, experimentally validated uh, political science research that shows that when you you have decision makers who are all of one or even overwhelmingly of one side, that they tend to move the entire group more radically than any of them were to begin with. Right? It's not just a summation, but there's actually a radicalization that's part of the experience of deliberating with people who already agree with you. But the opposite is true of mixed groups so that when uh, you have uh, a mixed group, the tendency is for the decision making process to to bring uh, uh, people uh, together and I think that's uh, one of the uh, uh, features of the of the uh, of a federal judiciary that that gives it quite a different uh, a character than, uh, uh, than the other branches. Uh, by the way, at the Court of Appeals level, there is also more regional diversity. This has to do with the fact that you have one party, large one party states like California in the Ninth Circuit so you know, for generations no judge gets named to a California seat. Uh, on the Ninth Circuit who hasn't been approved by Diane Feinstein and, and Barbara Boxer. You know, but similarly, you have Texas in the Fifth Circuit. You have uh, the Eighth Circuit as a whole string of largely Republican uh, red states. Each of these regions is then going to be slightly different, sometimes even markedly different. And the effect of that is when you have important questions that like same-sex marriage is just a a very recent one, uh, the immigration ban is another. They percolate up in different places. You have suits filed around the country and you get differences of opinion, right? Now, when all of the courts of appeals agree, then the Supreme Court tends not even to take the case, but that agreement among courts that are, you know, that are sort of structurally different ideologically is a pretty good guarantee that uh, we're getting the right answer. Not always, but a pretty good indication that the right answer has been reached. When they disagree, those are the cases that the Supreme Court takes. And then the Supreme Court has the benefit of some very, you know, really smart people on both sides of the question having uh, done their best with it, too. So the Supreme Court's uh, quality of decision-making Uh, is improved. Now, there's one last aspect of the politics of the courts I want to mention, which is, um, again, this is an artifact of the switch of the presidency every eight years. Uh, But at the beginning of any president's administration, the courts are going to have been predominantly named by the other party, right? And so, Every president encounters resistance from the courts, especially in the first term of a two-term uh, a presidency. I was a young lawyer in the Reagan administration, and let me tell you, it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating that do all these things that Reagan was doing that I thought were in the, na- in the, uh, in the common, in the real good of the nation, were getting struck down by the D.C. Circuit. And, you know, uh, very frustrating. But then the same thing happens to every president. Uh, it, it happened to Barack Obama. A number of his very important uh, uh, regulatory initiatives were struck down. A lot of these didn't even get all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, just a few examples uh, his, his net neutrality rules were uh, rejected several different times. His uh, in, uh, carbon related uh, you know, global warming related climate uh, regulations were struck down uh, uh, several times. His immigration order was struck down. Uh, his attempts to expand the recess appointment power were struck down that by the Supreme Court. It happens to every president. Now they all seem surprised by this and they sort of take it personally. Nobody has taken it personally quite to the degree of Donald Trump um, <laughs> who seems to take everything personally. Uh, but yes, we're now seeing the courts are already uh, striking down some of the things that he has done, and especially his executive order uh, having to do with the temporary uh, uh, a ban on uh, on travel from uh, certain uh, Middle Eastern states. Um, and uh, and you might think, well, is this you know is this because of Trump? It's not about Trump, right? It's uh, this is something that happens. It's and I want to suggest that this may be a good thing. It never feels like a good thing when you're there in the administration and want the administration to get its way. But this, is, uh, this may be one of the most important checks and balances we now have in our system. For a variety of reasons that I don't have time to go into right now, Congress has ceased to be a very effective institution. Uh, it's not very effective in checking uh, the authority of the president, uh, and so uh, th- that's what the framers thought they were doing, is they thought it was gonna be Congress that would be the check. They thought that, I don't think they fully appreciated how uh, the, the political role that the courts uh, could play, but if the co- Congress is no longer well institutionally situated in order to check the power of the president, uh, now uh, the courts are have the, Incentive, and because of the of this um, uh, of the way in which each president uh, has, it takes a certain amount of time for the president's appointments to take over. Uh, predictably, the president is going to encounter a certain amount of resistance uh, from the uh, from the courts. And so, you know, when you look at it and you say, "Why are they striking down?" I wish they wouldn't be striking down President Trump's orders quite so often. Just think back and say, you know, it was a blessing under some other presidents. And I say the same thing to my Democratic friends because the wheel turns and this is, um, what's sauce for the goose here is definitely sauce for the gander. So uh, so about the courts, just to summarize this, I, I don't want to make it look as though they are just political institutions. I don't believe that. I actually think that uh, that for the most part they, do govern according to the law and much more so than the newspapers and most people give them credit for. I think most people, if they could look behind the curtains, as I have been blessed to be able to do, would actually be quite reassured uh, by how much sheer rule of lawishness we still have in our court system. So it's, but to the extent we do have a politics, I've suggested five different uh, features to that politics. Uh, representation of the educated elite, uh, representation of the past and therefore uh, 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 stability, uh, a greater degree of partisan or political balance than the other branches have, uh, regional diversity in the courts of appeals, and then finally a tendency for the court to be oppositional, To new presidents, so as to provide a check against uh, uh, what a president is doing, and especially in his first term. Now, I'm gonna—I don't know. Those things may be good or bad. Each of them has, you know, um, some—the elitism of the first, in particular. I'm—I'm not entirely uh, pleased with, uh, but that's. That's for you, for all of us as American citizens, just to to evaluate. But I do think that that is what the politics of the courts look like, and therefore what we can expect uh, over the coming years. So thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.